Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Biblical World Podcast is focused on helping you understand the culture, context, archaeology, and history of the Bible. And to that end, we are continuing our five-part series on different views of the Exodus. And this comes from a book called Five Views on the Exodus that Mark Jansen, who's a co-host on this podcast, edited. And uh, this week, we've got part two of that series that we hope you enjoy. If you'd like to give toward the Biblical World podcast, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate um, or share the word however you feel prompted to do so. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Uh, Welcome back to On Script, the Biblical World podcast. I am Chris McKinney, your host, with my co-host, Mark Jansen, uh, Egyptologist, and we're continuing our our, our, our look at his brand new project, The Five Views of the Exodus. Uh, today we are joined, of course, with Mark, but also with Scott Stripling. Uh, we're going to have five of these total to get a, a kind of a very varied view of, uh, of the way scholarship has looked at the Exodus. So Mark, uh, welcome back as, as always, and can you introduce our guest as well as kind of give, a, give us another overview of the project to refresh our, view, our, our, our listeners uh, about what this project is all about? Sure thing. Always a, uh, always a pleasure to host with you as well. So the book is going to walk through five different views on the Exodus, which uh, run the gamut from 15th century down to you know, even the 12th century and even one on cultural memory with sort of various uh, debate about the historicity of the Exodus, the number of people involved, and another crucial area is, of course, the chronology and when it took place. And we are joined today by Dr. Scott Stripling, who serves as the provost at Bible Seminary there in Katy, Texas, and is also the director of excavations uh, for the Associates for Biblical Research at Kiribat el Makatir and Shiloh. And he has extensive uh, excavation experience in Jordan and Israel and is the author of The Trial and the Truth. Scott, thank you so much for jumping on with us today. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm really looking forward to uh, being with you and Chris. All right. Well, Scott represents the 15th century view, so-called early date, as it's also known, for the Exodus. So, Scott, I thought maybe you could take a few minutes, walk us through your position and and maybe the, the... what you would consider maybe the best three or four you know, pieces of evidence for it. You obviously can't do the whole chapter in this format, but hit the highlights for us if you would. Sure. Well, I appreciate the chance to talk about it, especially this week when we're coming up on Passover. This is particularly relevant. Um, we're looking at a number of biblical texts, and in my chapter, I dealt with five texts in particular, primary texts that I think point to a 15th century B.C. date. And that was 1 Kings 6.1, which is something I think all the authors had to deal with in one way or another because it's a a seminal text in the 480th year um, before the Israelites uh, exited from Egypt, or I'm sorry, after then Solomon built the temple. So this is, I think, 479, and then one year puts us at 480. Uh, Judges 11.26, 1 Chronicles 6.33 through 37, um, Ezekiel 41, and then um, Stephen's speech in Acts 7. So those are the, the... 
biblical foundations that I laid out in the chapter, and then we looked at uh, synchronizations between the material culture and those texts. Uh, things, for example, the Solib hieroglyph during the time of Amenhotep III, the inscription on there, does that, does that point to the land of the Shasu of Yahweh, and does that include who we think that might be? Um, we dealt with the Amarna tablets and how I believe those synchronize with a 15th century uh, exodus and conquest. And then the Berlin pedestal was also an important uh, one that I think can potentially give us an early uh, date for the exodus. So uh, what I attempted to do was to take the biblical data and then the material evidence that I thought synchronized with that from conquest sites like Jericho, Ai, Hatsor, Manival, and Shiloh and uh, take a take a look at it through that criterial criterial screen. Yeah. So um, stuff. Some of the things like the Berlin pedestal or scholars are still kind of sorting out. So um, I know you are one of our authors. There's a few of you who have a very favorable view towards the historicity of the Exodus. I wonder if you could, before we talk chronology, kind of walk us through why you do believe in a historical Exodus. Right. Well, I have found the the Bible to be a reliable historical document. And for example, I'm excavating at ancient Shiloh. We don't have anything in the Mesopotamian literature or the Egyptian literature that deals with Shiloh. I mean, what we have is the Bible. And so in my experience in the highlands of Israel, as well as the lowlands, the Bible is often our go-to source. And I have found it to be very reliable um, and if so, then I see no reason to consider when we get to portions like the Exodus to see it as eteleological when it has shown that it's reliable in other areas. So um, I think from my perspective, the Bible's innocent until proven guilty, and maybe in some per- others they see it as guilty until proven innocent. Yes, I think it's probably safe to say that you take a more canonical maybe approach to it in a lot of ways. Um so I think there's maybe a couple of ways we could sort of frame the discussion, too. There's the, the evidence within Exodus, and maybe we can start there and then talk about the other verses you mentioned, which will transition us maybe into 1 Kings 6 and some other ones. So what, what are the, the, the real key points for you within the narrative in the Pentateuch? Okay, well, we have some early texts. Uh, think about, for example, a lot of attention has been given to the Ketef Hinnom silver scrolls and the priestly blessing, but also on the other scroll, uh, it has, I believe, a a section of of Exodus 20 uh, that is in there. So you're dealing with a very old text. You have the Kuntilat Ajrud, uh, Pithas A, Pithas B uh, material, which is even uh, a century older. Then you have the Balaam inscription that's 8th century. Well, this material just didn't appear out of nowhere. I mean, it comes from somewhere. And so we have a very ancient tradition. And it is so seminal, we can look at the impact that it had. And, and in a sense, cult, uh, cultural memory is a real thing. But that, that doesn't negate the reality of the historical events and with specificity, I believe. So uh, I see the imprint and impact that the Exodus event had on the Jewish nation and then those that were impacted by it and how it continues to impact us today. The fact that we're having this discussion indicates that there's a lot of interest about it. Right. Um, so you think, since you brought up cultural memory, I'll, I'll, I'll take a, a rabbit trail for one second. Do you think um, there's any reason to sort of ipso facto say cultural memory equals a historical event? I think that sometimes is the assumption by at least some of the scholars in that group. Um, although I think Ron was very careful to, to not really go that far with it, but there are others who I think have. What do you think of, of what would you say to that 
idea. No, I think you're right. We, when you're doing a, a project like this, it's really interesting because sometimes when we're speaking in our own circles and <laughs> our own echo chamber, we can get away with saying things without you know, proper support. But when you know that you've got four other scholars that are going to take you to task for uh, anywhere that you misspeak, I think you do have to be careful. We have a lot. Myth is important. Um, uh, it plays an important role in our culture, the idea that we need heroes. And Moses certainly fits that that typology. Moses is a hero. He is a deliverer. I mean, who can't identify with the underdog and these people that went from this this horrific past into a into a better future? So I think people will always be able to relate to that idea of bondage and oppression and deliverance and how does God work in the affairs of men? Yeah, and I think it's it's for me it's important to recognize that there can be layers to the cultural memory and that that tells us about you know a redaction or a later edit or whatever that doesn't necessarily fictionalize the whole event and it it is a nice window into how the Israelites are contextualizing it when when Jim was on for example he pointed out how the Exodus event and Moses are are so foundational to the formation of the nation of Israel and their law and it's referenced like two hundred times in the Old Testament. I think that all is part of cultural memory, but in my view, it doesn't fictionalize the whole event. No, it's not just at another all. layer. As a Texan, I'll give you a good example. We just celebrated the Alamo. March is always okay. the, the year that we do that. Uh, Stephen F. Austin's father's name was Moses. I mean, it was Moses Austin who led, led these 300 refugees from the East and brought them to the Promised Land. I mean, that was, you couldn't ask for a better name for the leader and the whole typology. And, you know, you get, get to the Alamo and our views of Davy Crockett, for example, uh, of his heroism and all. Well, now we have, as I point out in my chapter, a, a, a diary from a Mexican lieutenant who writes that Crockett was captured and while trying to flee and then executed by Santana. Well, that goes against the, the story that we've been told, or John Wayne portrayed it anyway in, in the Alamo, and it takes on a life of its own. Well, which do we go with? Do we go with a written account or do we go with a cultural memory that was passed down? Um, the written account's probably more accurate. Now, how, how we're going to tell the story to our kids, that's another story. Yeah, ideally we'd have collaborative evidence that helps maybe clean up the memory or correct it and so on. So, um, so yeah, good stuff. Let's uh, let's transition to the chronology now, as that's kind of the, the way we frame the book with your chapter first, because you're the early date. If you could walk us through the, the reasoning behind that view. Well, first of all, thanks for letting me write chapter one. When I uh, got your email that I got to write chapter one, I said, yes, because we know that a lot of people only read the first chapter of a book, so, you know, I was thrilled with that. Yeah, now what was your actual question? <laughs> Just what your reasoning for the 15th century date is. Yeah, well, coming uh, with a, a direct reading, a literal reading of 1 Kings 6-1, that's where it puts you in the mid-15th century. If we did not have archaeology, and I know that saddens the three of us to think about that, but if we did not have archaeology and we were dealing with the text on isolation, I think that... M- the large majority of us would say that the text itself is pointing to the 15th century. So that's my beginning point is from the text. And then I'm going to reach out from there and explore um, what evidence might synchronize with that. And if I found that the, the, the 
evidence was in total conflict with what my understanding of the text was, then I might have to back up and say, am I, do I not have genre awareness or, you know, am I exegeting something incorrectly here? Do I lack skills in the original language or, you know, was there a problem in transmission? But I have not seen that problem. I think we do have uh, synchronization between the material culture and the text. So the, um, you said a couple of things that really got me thinking. I think a lot in philosophy terms here anymore lately and, and might eventually do a book on that for the Exodus, like the philosophy of it. And even when you said the phrase, the text itself, um, you're speaking of like the entirety of the Old Testament canon by using First Kings. And when I talk to Jim, he's thinking text itself, meaning like Exodus and the data within Exodus first. I think it's just interesting how there's two different approaches. Both of you are, of course, evangelicals committed to the historicity of it, but you have a different sort of um, approach to the chronology issue. Well, that's a very good point. And Jim brings out that he held an early date view until about 20 years ago. And when he began to look at Exodus in isolation. Now, from my perspective, uh, methodologically, that's valuable, but you don't stop there. You know, I can study the Johannine literature and in, in isolation to understand John and his writing and his metaphor, but then I take it into the larger corpus and run it through that. So I applaud Jim for, for doing that, for reading it in isolation, but from my view, then he needs to incorporate that back into the larger uh, corpus of data. Yeah, I don't want to make some big debate of it. I think he would probably say he would make it more of his starting point rather than isolation, because he'll then talk about the prophets and kings and other places as well. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so what do you say to people who would say that 480 years in First Kings is symbolic and it's based on the genre of dedicatory temple inscriptions and that genre? Right, right. And I think Jim used the term distanzengaben and, you know, I, I recognize that those things do exist. My problem with that is that we have four other passages that synchronize with it. Um, if that's the case, then all these other biblical writers seem to be getting us back to the same place, to the mid-15th century thereabouts. So if, if that were the case, I would not expect those other passages to harmonize with it. And for our listeners, let's maybe take just a minute and kind of quickly summarize those. So you're talking about Jephthah. Judges 11.26, Jephthah, which we would all place him around 1100, you know, give or take. And uh, 300 years, my people have been in this land. That puts you around 1400. Um, and, you know, the answers that I've heard to that, to my view, are not satisfactory, that he was a country bumpkin, and how would he How would he know? He got everything else wrong, so we shouldn't trust him, that kind of thing has been, the, that's the kind of normal objection to it, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah. the, a really interesting one, though, is First uh, Chronicles 6, 33-37 in that uh, genealogy, because several of the authors interacted with that that passage. And it wasn't Hindle, but uh, I can't remember which one of my colleagues it was, maybe Rensburg, that dealt with that. It was Gary, yeah. Yeah, and uh, basically um, thought I made a mistake by dealing with the longer, more complete genealogy in, in First Chronicles 6, and I should have used the truncated version that was a little bit later and that that was more reliable. You know, and then he's dealing with an oral African, a modern oral African tr tradition or paradigm, which I don't think is, is applicable in, in this case. Uh, you've got 18 generations in that passage, and all of us but one agreed that a generation is about 25 years, and that then 
puts you very nicely when you add the 19th generation for Solomon right back to the mid, mid 15th century. So um, those are the others. The, the Exodus 40 dealing with the Jubilee cycles, that's a long kind of complicated discussion. And Ezekiel 40, right? Ezekiel yes. 40. What did Is I say? Yeah. You said Exodus, but yes, I, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, thank you. Ezekiel 40, verse 1, and then um, Stephen's chronology in Acts chapter 7. Again, I think even with the genealogies, we can see that I think one of the things I hope readers come away from in the book, among several things, is understanding that the impact that methodological sort of starting stances have on our research, and that's just because we're human beings. Um, and so Gary's point there is much more anthropological, and yours is more of a you know canon canonical biblical approach. And they, they can both be very valuable, so I'm not trying to take sides, certainly not. Uh, I try not to in the book as well. Um, and I just wondered one other question on chronology, and then maybe I'll let uh, Chris do a couple that relate to the archaeological data. Uh, and that is, what does the 15th century view, how does that take Exodus 111 and the reference to uh, Ramses? If you could explain that for our listeners. Sure, that's a great question. I mean, that's that's the the strongest argument for the late date comes from Exodus 111. <clears throat> so I'm not telling you anything, but for the benefit of the uh, listeners, we have uh, ancient Avaris in the Egyptian Delta, abandoned in the mid-15th century. A Semitic population is there. Uh, it's abandoned. I give the, the strata and substrata and so forth in the chapter. Um, I think that's, that's, we're looking at an exodus right there. That's evidence of it. And when it's rebuilt by Ramesses two centuries later, or a section of it on the northeast, at least, of ancient Avaris is rebuilt, what would today be called Kantir, uh, is named Ramesses. And so the site uh, has an incorporation and a name change. And I think that the later biblical writers are just referring to the, to the updated name so that their readers would understand what's going on. I'm talking to you from Houston right now, and 120 years ago, the name of Houston was Harrisburg, and it was incorporated into Houston, and if I were to ref tell your readers today something about Harrisburg, they would think I was talking about P Pennsylvania, so it would technically be inaccurate for me to refer to Houston 120 years ago because Houston didn't exist, Harrisburg did. So I'm just simply updating the language, and I think that's what you have in, in Exodus 111. Gotcha. All right, Chris? Yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of the early date, late date. I mean, I, I've I've been in this world uh, for a while now myself as well. It's uh, it's always a a fun uh, topic to, to 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 dive into and have discussion. And the thing that I always like about it is you're engaging in archaeology, you're engaging in biblical studies, and of course you're you're trying to make sense of the historical uh, aspect of it. The things that I don't always appreciate about it is kind of the blood sport mentality. It can often, it, this is not like, um, you know, this is not something that would had to have been settled at the Council of Nicaea or something along those lines. And so it's good to see um, people that agree on so much in, 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 in scripture and in theology to be able to come together and have a disagreement over this type of issue that really could be solved by uh, by archaeology um, and by uh, potentially by finds, although as we'll see, we'll continue to have disagreements. Um, to me, the uh, there's a number of, of archaeological discussions we could have. I mean, obviously, um, you know, Joshua, the Book of Joshua presents a uh, a picture of the the so-called conquest of Canaan, and I think we would all agree um, whether we're talking about a 13th century or 15th century view. 
we have uh, only three sites that are talked about as being burned. Uh, we're talking about Jericho, I, and Hatsor. Uh, and of course, Scott, you've spent a lot of time in the neighborhood of I, uh, and I do agree that it's in the neighborhood. It's just a matter of which, uh, which suburb of the neighborhood we're, we're in. Um, and, um, but, but, you know, in, in terms of the larger question, I think the best evidence, we might say, or the, the evidence that's the most distinctive, at least at this point, isn't associated with particular burn layers, but it has to do with the emergence of the Israelites in the highlands, um, in the areas of Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, particularly in the areas of Manasseh. And I think the single biggest archaeological deficiency that I've seen with the 15th century view is um, you, you may be able to make a case for uh, Jericho and I and Hatsor in, in terms of, of destruction layers. And I know I don't want to get into you know, all the different ways that can go, um, but there, there, there comes a point in time where um, the evidence, the, the Iron Age evidence, I'm talking about the Iron Age 1 evidence, seems to indicate um, that, there are, that there's this new population that comes into these areas and even people who don't agree with the historicity of, of, of Joshua and Judges and so on would agree that there's something really unique going on there. Um, but as far as it can be dated, and this is why the excavations at Shiloh, which uh, I know the director, he's on the call with us now, um, are so important, uh, as well as the, the work done at Ebal. I mean, these are the really, which you've also done some work on as well, Scott, um, are so important because these are the archaeological contexts that date to precisely this time period. And so much more work needs to be done in terms of actually excavating these early layers to know when exactly this process started. Right now, the assumption is, is that at the very earliest, this uh, Iron One uh, settlement wave starts at the late 13th century, um, at the very earliest, and most would say in the 12th and the 11th century. But, you know, potentially that could change with more excavations, with, with more types of survey. Now, from my perspective, again, I just see such a, a strong symmetry between what you have in a book like Joshua, with Joshua 17, uh, and they're, you know, they're carving out places for themselves in the hills. Uh, they're establishing uh, places um, in, in, in particularly Manasseh with what we see in the archaeology. And so to talk about a, a, a gap between something like 1400 BC to about 1200 BC, um, it, it might not sound like a lot, archaeologically speaking, but when you consider, you, you know, you reference the Alamo, uh, we're, we're, we're longer than, we're longer in terms of archaeology than we are from the Alamo. Uh, uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a big difference. And so I think that is the single biggest um, hurdle when it comes to a, a early date view, in my opinion. But at the same time, uh, and I think one of the best ways to approach this is, is not to be completely... Um, sold out to any one view, but to, to be open to where the evidence will go. Uh, so that would be my comment uh, on, on that. And, and I wish you great success in finding late Bronze Age and Iron One layers and, and all of them carbon-14 and, 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 and so on at Shiloh and, and, of course, new excavations in the area. Well, if I may, I'll just real quickly give you a reaction to why I sure, think there was do. an explosion in the Iron One of settlements on the highlands of Israel, which, you know, we cannot, I mean, we, I've excavated a couple of those, those settlements. There's no doubt that they occurred, maybe slightly earlier than we're dating them right now. But anyway, just in, in that neighborhood. Um, I think you have a small number of Israelites that enter Canaan. 
and uh, maybe 40,000 at the most. Could, could be significantly smaller than that. I don't know. Um, and if so, you know, they're told in Deuteronomy 28 that if they don't keep God's covenant, that they're going to have problems reproducing, that their birth rates are going to be affected by this. And then we have a clear record that they're not being obedient to covenant, you know, on a regular basis. And then the things that we're not told about, wars and famines and destructions and so forth, demographically, it's not linear. You know, it can be contracting and then growing. And for whatever reason, I think it's a couple of centuries before we see a demographic explosion to the point that they have to move out of the old Canaanite settlements. They've outgrown those. They're living in houses they didn't build, occupying cities they did not construct. And plus, they're probably largely nomadics, certainly semi-nomadic. Um, at this point. So a lot of pastoralists and a lot of semi-nomadism going on, and it does then reach a point of critical mass and outgrowth uh, in that Iron One period. But anyway, that's my view of why it takes a while. Okay, that, that makes, I mean, I, just so I can understand, so the idea is then is that the Israelites who come into the land, and I would agree are, are, are a much smaller number than is, has been said in the past, you know, 2.5 million. I mean, how do you take on the one hand, say 2.5 million, and then seven nations greater and larger than you, like what, which one is it? I know. I mean, well, Deuteronomy 7.7 7 says, I didn't choose you because you were yeah. greater number, but because you were smaller than everyone else. And even like the defeated I would make no sense. Right? It's like this disaster. It's like, wait a minute. How many? I think that's one of the things in the book. We definitely have clear agreement among the contributors that Elif is probably needs to be translated a little better in the standard English versions. So, so just to just to if I can summarize for myself and all for our audience, your view is then we have a, a conquest of a of a smaller uh, smaller group than is normally expected. They settle in the towns that is mentioned in Joshua twelve, like the, the the perhaps those towns that Joshua destroys. Some do anyway, and then some are living nomadic or semi nomadically. And then there comes a point in time where they settle in the highlands. And so you would agree that that is Israel that matches up with what we see in the Iron One material. You're just, you're just allowing for a 200-year period or so before that where there can be kind of a mixed variety of things happening. Is it, would that be a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. And let me just real quickly, I know time's at a premium, but I'll tell you about some exciting stuff of our research at Shiloh after three seasons. So as we go back over all the old pottery from the Danish digs and the, the Bar-Ilan dig and now our own stuff, and we're trying to understand that, um, I'm, I'm taking that total assemblage and looking at the LB assemblage, the Iron, Iron Age that follows it, the MB that precedes it, and I'm comparing it, say, to Betxian. And so I talked to someone like Bob Mullins, who is a tremendous ceramicist, and he did his PhD on the, the pottery at Betxian and that LB pottery. And so Bob says that the, like the, the Finkelstein LB pottery from Shiloh is identical to the Betxian uh, assemblage, and we took it piece by piece. Well, he's got it dated to LB2 and early in LB2, whereas you know, Finkelstein gave the impression that it was mainly LB1 uh, pottery. So that's the type of analysis that we're doing that may help us better understand what's going on. Yeah, and I think that's really important. I mean, that's important in the sense that, I mean, we're, we're really trying to get at these questions of, you know, early Israel, and, and of course, a site like Shiloh is so central to er, the, you know, these foundation stories that we have in books like Joshua and Judges and, and Samuel. But there's also this bigger idea that, 
you know, it's important for the region. You know, we need to know, you know, what, how does Shiloh relate to Shechem in this period in the Middle Bronze, Late Bronze? And so that's why the work isn't, this is only just one facet of the, the significant things that are happening uh, at your excavations at Shiloh. But before we get there, before we, uh, if you want to say anything else at Shiloh, I have some questions for you. All right. It's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a dark morning. You're just waking up at the Ritz Hotel in East Jerusalem. Um, what do you have uh, geared up for you? Coffee, tea, or energy drink <laughs> as you go to the excavation and make that drive out? Okay. We actually have breakfast. So I know most digs do an Israeli style, you know, coffee, tea, and then a, a crumpet on the run, and then later eat breakfast. Now we have a real breakfast, and I have taught all of these Israelis and Palestinians to cook old-fashioned Quaker oats. And so I'm preaching the gospel of Quaker oats, okay? And, city set uh, on a hill. A city set on a hill cannot be hit. I'm actually uh, seeking funding from the Quaker Oat Foundation. That's how, how you know, serious I am about this. Um, so we do have a, a regular breakfast before we uh, get on the bus, and then we have lunch at 1030. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Another subject. But, Matt, what is, just coffee oh, and ahead, tea, though. I mean, yeah. that is an important issue. So I personally, and I know everyone wants to know this, I personally have tea first thing with a, a bit, bit of honey, and then it's coffee rest of the day. Now, at Shiloh, of course, we have cappuccino machines and coffee bars, and in the civilized world, one cannot be expected to read pottery without a cappuccino. So, but of course, it does. Begin I had to tea. join this dig. My dig doesn't have any of that. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You, you, you have the, the coffee price reading. We paid the Macotter, Believe me, you, you have the coffee reading or the, the 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 pottery reading at literally the nap thirty, you know, of the day, and you're just you got to have the caffeine. Okay, um, favorite novel if you have one. I do. Um, most people don't realize that I also have a master's degree in English, and so. I'm pretty well-read in English literature, um, Hawthorne in particular, the golden age of American literature, 1840 to 1870. So that would be Hawthorne, Melville, Twain, Poe. I'm, um, I read that stuff for enjoyment. Very nice. Very nice. Um, now, I know, Scott, that you, you, you like to work out, you lift. What do you do in the summers besides pick up boulders? Do you, do you try uh, and go to, to a gym while you're in Israel? I, I've never found the time to do it, but I'm curious. Uh, if, if you have, um, I, you know, it's 26.2 miles from Shiloh to Ebenezer in case you didn't know that. And you of all people should know that Chris, but in case you didn't, um, the first marathon is that guy in first Samuel who ran from Ebenezer to Shiloh, 26.2 miles. <laughs> all the classicists have that wrong. <laughs> exactly. But if they were fighting Greeks and, you know, so maybe it, maybe it all works out. Um, no, I, I don't. I wish I had a treadmill or something just to get cardio, but um, I, that's the extent of my exercise is moving boulders. Which is, which is a lot of, which is a lot. You know, yeah, they don't let me dig much these days, but they will let me move boulders. Very nice. Now, we have something new that we're getting this year, um, a, a gator, uh, what would you call it, an ATV, a four-wheel, small ATV sort of vehicle. And I, somebody has given me some extra money, and I am having a winch put on it. And so with that winch, we will be able to extract boulders. Um, nice. And so if people like it tell Bernard, if they were like really nice to me and stuff, we might, <laughs> we might loan it to them in a pinch. That, that would be nice. That would be nice. I need you uh, to come over this summer and teach us how to do luminescence uh, dating. That's a go. new thing we want to do. We'll, we'll, 
you, you guys let us have your boulder remover and we'll show you. I didn't say have it. I said, well, I know borrow, okay. borrow, you right. know, you know, well, no, I'm, I'm sending this to Steve Ortiz as soon as we're done. <laughs> so what, um, so we talked to Shiloh, any other projects you, uh, are particularly excited about or anything going on in Shiloh that might be new that you want to share? Well, I mean, we're after three seasons now, we finally understand our stratigraphy. I mean, that's pretty, from, from my perspective, that's exciting, you know, that I think I really have a grasp on what the stratigraphy is, what we can now anticipate as we go forward and so forth. We've got a really cool uh, destruction matrix last season that we were able to carbon date, which matched the ceramic date. Uh, ten, about 1075 BC. And in that matrix, we found altar horns. Um, and so I think you're looking at the Philistine destruction of Shiloh. Um, the Bible implies it, but doesn't come right out and talk about it. Um, Finkelstein thought he had a destruction layer in Area C, and I think he was right. Uh, and now we appear to have it site-wide, and we've got clean carbon dates and ceramic dates. So that's pretty pretty exciting. That's living the archaeology dream right there. You you match those. <laughs> I know. Well, we had a big bet. You know, based on the pottery, I could anticipate pretty well what the date under the floor. It was a sealed locus, so you couldn't ask for more. Um, and turns out I was right. It was just nailed it at 1075 B.C. Well, that's great. Scott, do you have any um, Philistine pottery in that destruction layer? None. Not, we, not, not yet. Not, not yet, yet right. but we're just getting into it. But, you know, if they just came in and wiped everything out, maybe right. that wouldn't be there. But we do have a, a trinket that is looks like a... No, we can't find a parallel for it, but it's, it's a fish, um, ivory fish, and we're researching it. It could, have, it could be a Philistine item that was dropped. Very interesting. Yeah. And uh, it's just kind of all adding up with the storage rooms, the bone deposits, the um, palm granites and altar horns. I think we're seeing verisimilitude. And going forward, the most interesting thing this season and next season will be a monumental building from Iron One that happens to be um, uh, orienting east-west and um, could be very close to the dimensions of the tabernacle. We knew from the reading of 1 Samuel that you know, they may have built a permanent structure. The language, even in English, comes across that way. So I'm not claiming <laughs> that we have that at this point, but I'm just saying I'm very interested in excavating that building the next couple of summers. It will be very interesting to see what comes out of that. And as all of my archaeological colleagues, I wish us all great success uh, and the opening up of uh, the the ability to travel so we can have more clarity on if we can actually excavate and ha get back in the field. I know so many of us are just chomping at the bit to get to those questions that we've been asking ourselves for the better part of almost two years now. Well, I'm and afraid I know that, that the next time we're behind on publications, they're going to just tell us that there's a pandemic because there, <laughs> there has been more publication accomplished in this last year than I've ever seen. The, the new strand of COVID will be the excuse <laughs> everywhere. Right. Um, by the way, we do have final volumes on Kerbidil Makater coming out in a few months, uh, volumes one and two. Uh, Bryant Wood wrote volume one, and then I wrote volume two, and both volumes will come out in 2021. That's great, and we'd be happy to to point readers to those, um, and if especially if you have uh, publications like on your academia page and, and any of those types of things, we'd be happy to point our our listeners to to those and alert them to the, the publication. That's a that's a big congratulations. I know a lot goes into it. Was brutal. Um, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's a, it's a process, yeah. um, but it you know it's it's what archaeology is about. If you don't publish. 
you're just digging a hole in the ground. Yeah, and you so, are destroying evidence and making it inaccessible to others. So, yeah, we're happy to, you know, a rational person would have taken a couple of years off before starting the next dig, and but we did not do that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Scott, we, we really appreciate you being on, and this is just such a cool project that we hope serves so many students and anyone interested in the book of Exodus, as well as the Exodus event, and giving them some different interpretive options and seeing the scope of where scholarship is currently. And it's actually, I think, very interesting. If we, if we were to do this book 100 years ago, it would be a very different uh, situation, and that shows you how much things have changed archaeologically, um, but also just in terms of the development of scholarship. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a real joy hearing, uh, hearing your, uh, your, your background, your view here, as well as more about the, the Shiloh Project. So we're really glad you could come on. And uh, who knows, well, maybe we'll have some, some great news to tell us about Shiloh after this summer. But thank you again for coming on. Inshallah. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Mark. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.